So I'm just having a discussion with um, my co-director on the Pompeii Cast Project, Associate Professor Catherine Welch. Um, I'm Esther Laser. So Catherine, what is the role of the historian in the project and what is your role in particular? Well, let's start with my role because I think there are two parts to my role. Uh, one, because I work here at the University of Sydney and I have a fair degree of institutional capacity, um, I do a lot of the organisation. Um, so that will entail sometimes working, uh, applying for grants so that we can um, undertake our work, uh, looking after the money, uh, looking after the uh, paperwork that needs to be filled out with the university when we do permissions, very, very heavily involved in applying for the memorandum of agreement um, because there are just some things that I can do um, here on the ground at the university and also to make sure that uh, you, Estelle, uh, continue to be a part of our uh, operation here as our colleague and um, that the university can support the project. So I, I kind of operate as a liaison person in all those respects, um, which is a great great honour and pleasure for me to do but in my day job when I'm not assisting with uh, the Pompeii Cast project I am a Roman historian and I, I guess um, my special fields are uh, Republican Roman history and I don't worry about saying that particularly Republican Roman political history is what I would spend a lot of my time doing. So I work on guys like Julius Caesar and Mark Antony and um, also the women of the time and, and, and this sort of thing. So And, of course, since, um, since I guess, the beginning of the 2000s, the beginning of this century, you can say that now, it's we're 20 years in, um, I've developed a big teaching interest in Roman, uh, the Roman landscape and the history of the city of Rome. And that also enables me to bring something very special to the project. And so how much can Pompeii teach us about life in Roman Italy? <laughs> well, this is a very interesting question. So Rome, it's a huge metropolis at its heyday, a city of around a million people. And then from Rome, we get the idea of Roman, which of course are other centres, first in Italy and then around the Mediterranean, across the Mediterranean, um, reaching uh, well across into modern-day Turkey, uh, modern-day Syria uh, and the Levant, Egypt, uh, spreading the kind of architecture and sometimes aspects of political organisation, city life that we will call Roman. We'll call Roman. Now they weren't entirely Roman. Nothing is entirely Roman. Rome is Rome, but they reflect the fact that Rome was the imperial power for so many centuries. Italy itself, Rome and Italy, uh, is a big field of study in its own right. Not just Pompeii. Um, the many myriad of cities that uh, grew up through the peninsula that had their own histories before Rome came along. Uh, Rome tends to amalgamate them under um, through a series of individual treaties and arrangements, so they all seem eventually seem to have this um, uh, come under Roman sway and, and have their organisation, their town, their cities, their landscapes all um, 
changed by the experience of their relationship with Rome. And Pompeii, of course, famously comes directly under Roman power in 80, but had been profoundly affected by Rome even before then. And I guess, too, you've got an Italian culture that was there even for Rome to tap into. So this is a bit of a two-way street as to what might have been before, what happens with um, Roman domination, and then we get this city of Pompeii, which which is an amazing archaeological site for us, isn't it? It's perhaps the best, would you say? I know Estelle's got a big soft spot for it, but from the amount of information we can find out from it, it's, it's pretty spectacular, is it not? The Vesuvian sites are... They're unique because of the way that they were preserved. Um, we have just this phenomenal wealth of information that there is no parallel for in any other site. So they've tended to become a model for Rome in general. And maybe, maybe people forget that they weren't Rome. And I think that's something that we have to keep in mind when we're studying them, that uh, they were not really very important in the time that they were occupied. And they're much more important to us now as we look back. But in antiquity, you know, they were they were so unimportant that when Pliny the Younger was writing about the eruption, he didn't mention them by name. He doesn't even mention them. What would you have said was, roughly speaking, and these are all rubbery figures, but roughly speaking, what do you think, the people think that the population of Pompeii and Herculaneum was well, at the time of their destruction? We honestly don't know. Um, the, and, and the variation in estimates tells us how much we don't know. So I think the numbers vary. I think the very lowest are below 8,000, so 6,000 and something, right up to 36,000. And uh, I've, I've been to conferences where the results are discussed. We just don't have sufficient But, but we're still at the maximum. You're looking at a figure of under 40,000. Oh, definitely, and and a lot of scholars would sort of you know split the difference and say about fifteen thousand, but really, really, we don't know. But it's not like a vast number. It's not a big, a big metropolis like. And Herculaneum, we don't know the extent of it, perhaps, but even smaller. Well, most people um, suggest that the number was between four and a half and five thousand, but but again, we we don't know for sure. All of these demographics are very, very hard to ascertain, but even if we just take it on a proportional level, the Roman demographers, um, those trying to work out exactly the same thing, the population of the city of Rome, would go as low as 800,000, and they'd go up to a million and a half for around about the same time. So immediately you get, like, we will never know the exact figures, it's just impossible to know them. All ancient figures are worrying, but but that difference in scale allows alone. And if you just think about the sort of infrastructure that Rome requires um, to provide life, even in, in its most basic form, for the citizens. Uh, so uh, how many aqueducts does uh, Pompeii have? One? <laughs> Rome has, uh, I think, uh, I can't remember the exact figure, but it's upwards of ten and then it keeps growing, and then those aqueducts 
had to be serviced by armies of trained slaves who managed them, kept them going, make sure that if there was a leak somewhere it was fixed and uh, made sure even the building of them, the science that went into them uh, was so much more majestic and magnificent. Those long arcades that you think of when you think of as aqueducts, in fact, are a very small proportion of how an aqueduct worked. They were when you didn't have an alternative because they were the most expensive thing to build. You normally tried to use the terrain to get that gradient so that the water would flow. And you've got aqueducts. If you go down to Porto Maggiore, there's something like five aqueducts meet at that point and then go off into different parts of the city in this miraculously complex way. Um, and so even that alone, just think about the, the size of the population, the need for water, um, getting food to that population was an absolutely meticulous task and it came under the banner of uh, various politicians in the late Republic, but under the empire with emperors, it was one of the emperor's key duties. You think it's all about war and all the rest of it, it was not. It, one of the most important things the emperor had to do was get, get grain into Rome, store it, um, some of it was given away free to the citizens and some of it was sold, but just feeding the population was a massive, massive infrastructure um, job. And so the contrast between the two cities, uh, from my point of view, is remarkable. Everything you meet in Rome, you meet in Pompeii in a kind of shrunk down, observable and recognisable form, but it's just on steroids when you go up the road um, to, to Latium and Rome. Yeah, it's true. So. Do you think that um, we can extrapolate, say, housing from what we see in Pompeii? I, I think people have done. Um, let's start with some of the things that we're pretty sure we can, and I think food. Um, now, of course, there will always be regional differences in food because uh, as most ancient populations went with what was local and the fields of Campania were very, very rich. And it was, actually, though, it wasn't that hard um, to get food... Um, that wasn't too perishable, up the road from Campania to Rome. And, and we know that that could happen. We also know that the Romans um, had a lot of villas down in this area, so there's traffic between the two areas um, uh, all the time, all the time, I think in every season, but particularly the summer months and the nicer weather, the, you, you'd get people going up and down. And, and we know that there are close personal relationships. Um, but I think what you can say with housing is... Um, it, I think it was probably easier to have a nice spread out house in Pompeii than you would in downtown Rome, um, by the look of it. Now, of course, that would depend on what period of history you're speaking about in Rome. But in its densest, heaviest populated time, you, you needed to crowd people in a little bit more. So things that you get up in Rome, and even at Rome's harbour town, Ostia, although that's a bit different also, are the apartment blocks. I don't think you get too many big apartment blocks in the Vesuvian region, am I correct? No, there's uh, certainly one in Herculaneum I can think of that's three storeys, but I don't think the scale and number would be comparable to what you see in Rome. Mm. Because, yeah, of course, they're not the same sort of um, occupations. <laughs> Even the landform, I mean, um, the hills of Rome are... They're not quite so observable today. They are in some circumstances, but a lot of them have been filled in um, over time. But the, the fact that you're in this hilly area with just some level surfaces means that housing has to be differently configured. Uh, but the, the, the big blocks of apartments, which were many, many more than three storeys, 
are a sign that you are trying to pack a massive population into quite a small land area. It's not, it's not like Rome has urban sprawl, it does now, but it didn't uh, in antiquity, and it didn't until very, very recently. It was a very small um, land area to, for a very large population. And we know uh, this is how a lot of the great fires in Rome started, uh, were because of the packed-in population. Uh, we also know that uh, that things like um, getting fresh water up to various levels was difficult. Uh, we've got descriptions of people living in these pokey little uh, garrets and thinking about how expensive it was in comparison to a lovely villa in the countryside. So you would find these kinds of contrasts um, through density of population impacting on the sorts of the varied sorts of houses. I must say though that in late antiquity, once the population of Rome fell and once it wasn't so important politically because Constantine moved the capital, what we're finding more and more is that a lot of these insular blocks, apartment blocks and were amalgamated and you do find really big palatial houses beginning to grow up. Um, and maybe people buying up real estate and getting two or three different houses and amalgamating them into one house simply because cities change over time. And I guess that's another big difference with Pompeii. It stops there in 79, and we don't see what would happen, whereas in Rome you've got so many complicated layers in on top of each other. But the, the, in all fairness, um, in Pompeii you do have a lot of... From before, yeah. yes. So. Yeah. People are occupying houses sometimes for hundreds of years and they're doing exactly the same thing. They're buying land, they're subdividing, they... Um, they Put a flat in upstairs so they can make a bit more money. <laughs> they, they just, you know, people don't change that much. No. I mean, there are significant differences, of course, between then and now, um, but uh, there are also significant similarities. Yes, indeed. And, of course... Uh, Rome changes through big events like the Great Fire of 64, for example, and Pompeii changes dramatically around the same time because of the earthquake. So we, we do see we see a pattern in a parallel, but I, I don't think Pompeii ever has to cope with anything like the density of, um, uh, of the living areas of Rome. Mind you, I must say that Rome is very interesting because you have these densely packed areas... And then you have these huge suburban gardens. So it's not like a complete rat hole for the entire space. You have um, both the aristocratic gardens, but also the big public gardens. And, and Rome had a lot of amenity. That's why it could cope with this huge population. It's got, as I said, not just the water supply, but, um, but all the imperial buildings, the imperial baths, again, um, all, uh, you find them all in Pompeii and Herculaneum and the other Vesuvian cities. It's just that I don't think you ever find anything that is quite the same as the bars of Caracalla or the bars of Diocletian. You could fit a bit of Pompeii just on the side of the bars of Caracalla, could you not? <laughs> without a doubt, without a doubt. No, the scale is completely different. Um, now, in terms of politics, would you say it was very different? Oh, yes. We know so little about Pompe uh, Pompeian and Herculaneum politics. We have a name here and there. We have... Uh, a little bit of an idea about which families might have been important. We know a little bit about the structure, but we really don't get a narrative of the politics in any of the Vesuvian cities. We depend on inscriptions, we depend on incidentals, and um, it is very interesting for the political historian to try and make sense of what's going on in Pompeii from this very, very, very fragmentary evidence. To give you an example, 
um, one of the most famous um, citizens of Pompeii is Marcus Falconius Rufus, and he's a tribunus a popolo. We have no idea what that is. We really don't know what that is because that title, a popolo, of the people, we think, doesn't occur anywhere else. So we can't tell. Whereas with Rome, because everything's centred on the emperors and everybody wants to know who they're sleeping with and who they're killing and whatever and everything, we'd love to know what they had for breakfast if we could find out. Uh, and sometimes the authors tell us. And sometimes we have to sift our way through those narratives to try and work out what might have happened in fact. But, but we've got a narrative there, whereas we really don't have a narrative of who is connected with whom. You might have a fragmentary inscription. You might know, for example, that Eumachia had a son called Marcus Numistius Fronto. You wouldn't know a single thing that Marcus Numistius Fronto did. He is Eumachia's son. And we know he was a duumvir, but we don't quite know what he did with his time in office. So we have snatches and we have an edifice. We understand a little bit about the politics. Um, and people have actually done a pretty good job at trying to you know, draw out what we have. But it isn't anything like the grand narrative of, say, the Roman Republic or the Roman Empire and the history of the emperors and, and all their households and, and the rest. Indeed, from Rome, we have all this inscriptional evidence as well, um, but it adds, it's added on to a narrative, whereas in Pompeii, Herculaneum and these other centres, we have only this little scraps to try and make sense of the city. True. So you think we extrapolate far too much? We, it goes both ways, I think. We take, because of this Italian culture I was speaking about before, we have many, many, many Italian towns. Pompeii is just one of them, and it's one of the, better, the best preserved of them. But we have many, many Italian towns, all of with this same sort of evidence, of inscriptional evidence, of statues, of tombs, and, and the rest of it. Um, and so we've got a pretty fair idea about how things worked, it's just, as I said, that we don't have the detail of what happened. Um, and it's so tantalising because there are things that are unique to Pompeii politics. Uh, for example, the um, role of the public, public priestess mm -hmm. um, that we see in Pompeii with Eumachia that I've mentioned, but also Mamia and others. Um, I, it's very hard to find exactly that same thing happening in Rome. And you sort of see something similar in a town like Paestum, but it's similar but different. Neither Eunatmachia nor uh, Mamia finds any reason at all to mention a husband. And yet the other examples I can tell, I can think of, all seem to relate women inside both their natal family and their marital family. Whereas Eunatmachia, Mr. Numistrius Fronto, that no doubt fathered young Numistrius Fronto, he never gets a mention, we never hear of him. That's really interesting, it is. isn't it? It is. It means there are things that are unique to Pompeii, and we should not think that we're going to find the same thing either in Rome or even in another Italian town. It's unique to their politics and their system and their their hierarchy. Which is great, and yeah. it makes studying it even more worthwhile because we see that there's some diversity across the peninsula. Absolutely is. Which yes. I think is really important. And I know the last thing, just to tie in with that, is um, why are we studying the skeletons? Why do they have you know so much pull from Pompeii um, and now Herculaneum as well? Before you know, up until 1980, Herculaneum wasn't in the picture purely because they didn't find bodies there, and so the interpretation was that everyone escaped 
and this is the joy of archaeology. The second that you put your trowel in the ground, you're going to find something that makes you have to rewrite the past. And we don't have literary evidence, so we're absolutely relying on the archaeological remains. Absolutely. And, and if we could just add to that, uh, in other centres, um, the skeletons in Rome, for example, they're just not there or they're not available um, or they haven't been available. I mean, they're still finding things. They're, they're still finding all sorts of things. Um, but we've relied on cemeteries and um, descriptions, funerary inscriptions and the rest of it um, from a city that uh, these things have been overturned for a long time. So the, 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 the basis of the evidence is different. Even when we do find the skeletons, we, we don't find the situation. that We find people that have died um, through illness or whatever and so we don't get the snapshot that you've so brilliantly drawn for us of a population that all died at the same time of an accident and therefore you can study them in their wellness rather than in their illness um, and it's true. I think that does make Pompeii quite and, and the other Vesuvian cities where there are skeletal remains very different. Absolutely true they're, they're completely unique because as you said we have large samples of um, people who died of the same cause at roughly the same time. They didn't all die at exactly the same time, but of the same event. I do in centuries. It's the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, close enough. And, and it's true, what we get from a cemetery is quite, quite different to what we'll get from, from a living population. So we don't have the population. It's very important to bear in mind we've got a sample of victims. Mm. We don't have all the victims. But what we do have, and what we appear to have, at least at Pompeii, Herculaneum's a little more complicated, but at Pompeii doesn't seem to be any apparent skewing um, towards, well, anything, sex, age of death, pathology. So we do seem to have a pretty good um, indication of who might have been about at the time. And in a cemetery population, you do get the people who don't survive. So what you'll see in a cemetery population that you won't see in Pompeii or Herculaneum is evidence of infant mortality, for example, mm -hmm. which we know was very, very high, but you just have no evidence yep. for it at all in um, a site like Pompeii. So it gives us a completely different um, insight into antiquity to any cemetery population, and there really is no parallel. Especially when most cemetery populations from antiquity are pretty fragmented. You only get a little bit of the cemetery often, and you, you don't even get the full picture of what might have been there. So, And preservation is always so uh, Very uncertain. Yeah. yeah, well, even even with Pompeii, it's, you know, most of our problems are post-excavation problems. So when they started digging from 1748, they, they just archaeology didn't exist so we can't you know it's developed with the excavation of the site and the fact that they kept bones was pretty amazing but they didn't keep them that carefully so we've lost a lot of information and the reason that we're doing the cast study initially though of course it's changed but the initial aim was to actually see full um fully articulated skeletons to actually compare the results with what we have from the from the uh, victims that weren't preserved in, um, the, whose forms weren't preserved in ash. Yes. And so to come back to my role, I guess everything we do in history needs context. 
everything we do uh, when we look at uh, Pompeii should be monitored um, for what's happening in Rome and in the rest of the Roman Empire and to pull out the distinctive material and why it's distinctive and also to see when it does fit into a different context. Um, and so in this regard too, the work of our friend Ferdinando de Simone is looking at what happens in the region in the centuries following the AD um, 79 eruption is all such critical information because we're better able to, Pom to understand Pompeii if we can locate it in its own context but also in the context of Roman Italy and the Mediterranean world in general. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the work that's being done in areas that aren't at the coast on the coast of the Bay of Naples is completely making us rethink the past. So the AD 79 eruption, it was apocalyptic for those sites that we we know so well. So Pompeii, Herculaneum, Aplontus, um, Boscoreale, Stabia, it was pretty terrible. But there are a lot of places that survived. I mean, Naples, for example, was seems to have been all right. And closer, um, we've got um, the area around Montesoma where you, you've got evidence of people coming back and reoccupying. Mm. So they're not necessarily reoccupying the sites as they were originally, but they're reoccupying and they're, they're doing a lot of agriculture. There's a very big um, industry in um, wine production because they're growing grapes, they're um, pressing grapes, they're fermenting the wine and it's a very important um, industry that continues on and we have pretty good evidence that it's going all the way through at least up until the 5th century till 472. So we're learning this. Yes, yeah, so, um, and that's the wonderful thing. Again, the more we the more we expand our horizons archaeologically, the more we understand about the ancient world. And uh, if ever we get more documents out of the library uh, in the villa of the Papari, perhaps I'll know some more history than I know now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>